Thank you so much for reading, Adrienne. And may I add my welcome to that of Callum's. Really great to see everyone here. Really love to have some visitors with us who I've met this morning, and I hope you will stay with us for morning tea. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do have a Bible with you, I'd be very grateful if you would keep it open to our passage. We'll be referring to it a number of times as we study this important part of God's Word. I'm going to lead us in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray this morning, as we come to this portion of your word, that we would come reverently and we would be addressed by you to the very depths of our being. Amen. Well, if you've joined us, we've begun a series in Ephesians, which we've been tracking along with for a number of weeks, and we've come to this passage this morning, which is a challenging passage, but I'm convinced an utterly wonderful passage that we need to hear. One of the very, excuse me, worst weeks of my life was spent at a place called Legoland in the UK, in Windsor, one British autumn summer school holidays. It was a few years ago. The nightmare is still with me. We stayed in a place called Legoland Hotel, complete with Lego-themed everything, bedsheets, towels, toothpaste, all Lego. And days involved getting up as early as possible to queue for hours in the rain and the freezing cold, all for a three-minute ride, while being blasted with inanely cheerful Lego music, which was totally inappropriate for that time of the morning. I hasten to add that Ellie and the children were with me. I wasn't there alone. (laughs) But one thing that did really impress me at Legoland was the reconstructions of famous sites around the world, made up of thousands of pieces of individual Lego. There were these reconstructions of the Taj Mahal and the Buckingham Palace and the Empire State Building put in intricate detail. It was amazing through the rain. And uh, that picture is what we've seen through this letter, a picture of a cosmic unity, an extraordinary temple being built by God now that has been built around the Lord Jesus Christ Out of billions of broken pieces of humanity, divided humanity, God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead and made him the head of a new body, of a new humanity. And the church, us, we are the place in all the world where the hostility of race and class and age and gender have been overcome. For we have Christ, our peace. That cosmic unity under Christ is what God is doing now and it is on display in the church. Like Lego pieces, that cosmic unity made up of billions of pieces of individuals brought together, each piece fitting together in unity to make the greater unity. And at the very heart of it, our passage tells us, is the Christian family. And over the next three weeks, we'll see with wives and husbands and then children and parents, servants and masters, how these pieces are to fit together according to God to contribute to that greater unity. And these patterns are, as Paul says in verse 15, just above our passage, the way of wisdom. This is God's wisdom. As we saw back in chapter 3, the church is where God's manifest wisdom is on display and living life according to these patterns, as outlined in these verses, is the way of wisdom. It's also, did you notice verse 18, the way of the Spirit. 
It's the way to live life that is full of God. What is the spirit-filled life? Well, it's here. Verse 18, the commandment is, be filled by the spirit. That's the main command. Then hanging off that are all these ways that show us what that means. What does it mean to be filled by the spirit? Well, verse 19, it is to address one another with God's living word. It is, verse 19, singing to the Lord in our hearts. It is to thank God at all times as the creator. And importantly, verse 21, which acts as a topic sentence for the passage we're looking at today and subsequent verses, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. All the instructions about our relationships are really, what is it to be a spirit-filled, God-filled church, beginning with wives and husbands? As I said, it is challenging to us, but it is magnificent. Christopher Ashe wrote an excellent book, which I heartily recommend, on marriage, Christian marriage. And this is what he says. We have in Ephesians 5 an incomparably beautiful pattern of married relationship. Neither male chauvinistic patriarchy nor secular feminist egalitarianism can approach this pattern for beauty and blessing. It is a pattern which challenges all our presuppositions for how marriage ought to be. And I think that is utterly true. The pattern that we see here is revolutionary. It is radical and challenges our nature and also the assumptions of our culture today, yes, but just as much as when it was first read in AD 62. Revolutionary, it is beautiful. It is God's divine plan to show the beautiful relationship between Christ and the church. And the world has nothing that comes near to this. Beautiful and blessing. It is for our good. God's word is for our blessing. There are three elements to what Paul says in this passage, and I'm going to take them according to the amount of time Paul gives them each, beginning first with what he says about the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church. That is actually what dominates everything he says. Second, I'm going to speak about what he says with regard to husbands, which takes up the next amount of instruction. Then, thirdly, I'm going to speak about what it says to wives, who are directly addressed in just three and a half verses. And hopefully by then we'll have run out of time, so I won't have anything to say. That's a a joke. (laughs) First, the ultimate marriage, Christ and the church. The ultimate marriage is not our marriages, Paul says it is between Christ and the church. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Those who are familiar with the Bible will know that that is a quote from Genesis chapter 2 and the account of creation of man and woman and the very first marriage which follows next. But Paul goes on to say, did you notice verse 32? This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I went once as a backpacker to Florence on my way to see the David sculpture by Michelangelo in the Galleria dell'Accademia, I believe it's pronounced. I got off at the train station, and I thought I was going to see the David in the museum, but all around me, all over the place, were these other Davids on postcards and posters, for sale on roadside shops everywhere. They, however, were only copies of the real thing. They were not the real thing, which I eventually did get to see after about a five-hour wait in a queue. Yes, 
Genesis tells us that God was referring to the first human marriage in the first place. But at an even deeper level, he was speaking about the real thing, the ultimate marriage to come between Christ and the church. And do you see the point? Human marriage is a wonderful gift from God, but it is not ultimate. One of its key purposes is to give us a glimpse of that greater ultimate reality that we are part of and have the privilege of being part of if we belong to Christ. Rebecca McLaughlin says this, God created sex and marriage as a telescope to give us a glimpse of his star-sized desire for intimacy with us. It's worth pausing for a moment at this point and recognise some of the obvious implications of this. First of all, that is why marriage is and can only ever be between a man and a woman. We know that all over the world, governments are bringing in legislation to legalise same-sex marriage. But no matter what we might try to say, marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman can never be real marriage because, of course, it can never properly reflect the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church. Second implication is that it puts our human marriages into proper perspective. There'll be many this morning who are currently unmarried, whether never married before or widowed. There'll be others of us who are in marriages where, honestly, we find it so difficult and, frankly, disappointing compared to what we were hoping for. But if we are Christians this morning, each of us are part of this greater marriage, a marriage that will be consummated one day beautifully in the future, as we sang about in our earliest hymn. We look forward to experience the perfect marriage, which will far exceed even the best human marriage there is. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin puts it so wonderfully. She says, when we are fully enjoying the ultimate relationship, no one will lament for the loss of the scale model. The ultimate marriage is between Christ and the church. And in this ultimate marriage, Christ is the husband and the church is his bride. In this one flesh union, verse 23, Christ is the head of the church, his body. And therefore, our role as his church, as his bride, is to submit to him, our head. That submission is not a forced submission. It's not oppression. It is a voluntary, willing decision to receive the blessings of Christ's headship, which is self-sacrificial love. And that brings us blessing. And it is beautiful. The church submits to Christ, and Christ loves the church. Christ's headship is expressed in self sacrificial love. And that is the nature of his headship. Verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're not a believer this morning, and I'm, I'm really glad that you are here, I want you to listen up especially at this point, because this is the heart of the Christian message. The Christian truth is a love story, a cosmic love story. And the Ezekiel reading that we had from the Old Testament part of the Bible with its marriage imagery, gives us the background. We are the filthy, naked, shameful social outcast. And Jesus Christ is the king who has left the splendor of heaven and the palace of eternity to make us his bride, 
and it cost him his life. He gave himself up for us on a Roman cross so that we could be his. Verse 26 explains why he made this sacrifice and what it achieves. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her. That means to make her pure and holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Some of us might be familiar with Jackie Pullinger, who was a missionary who spent her life working with the very most outcast in Hong Kong, with heroin addicts and prostitutes. One of the people that she met was a 72-year-old woman called Alfreda. Alfreda was a heroin addict and a prostitute for 60 years. She used to spend her days outside a brothel in a rundown part of Hong Kong, injecting herself three times a day with heroin. She didn't have an identity card, so she didn't even exist in the eyes of the Hong Kong government. But then she heard the gospel, how Jesus had died to cleanse her from all her sins, and her life was transformed. Sometime later, she met a man called Little Wa, who was 75 years old, and they got married. And Jackie Pullinger describes their wedding as the wedding of the decade, because Alfreda the former prostitute and heroin addict, walked down the aisle in a pure white dress, cleansed and forgiven and transformed by the love of Jesus. And what Jesus did for Alfreda is what he has done for each of us and collectively all of us as his bride, the church. In his love, he gave himself up for us. His powerful gospel word has cleansed us from all of our sins, past present and future. And he has done that so that one day we look forward to the time that he returns to take us as his bride in that great wedding feast when we will be with him forever. And his love was not a one-off act. It continues into the present. Verse 29, he continues today to love us by nourishing us and cherishing us. Christ, our husband, whose headship is continual, unending, giving, costly love, will never let us down and he will never stop loving us, never stop pursuing us, no matter how far we wander away, no matter how faithless we are to him. The ultimate marriage is between Christ and the church, which we participate in if we are Christians. Now, here's the question. Why does Paul spend so much time speaking about that marriage if his aim is to address us in our marriages? Answer, because earthly marriages in the church are modelled on this ultimate marriage. And did you see that? Time and time again, Paul says that. Verse 23, even as. Or verse 24, now as. Or verse 24 again, so also. Verse 25, as. 28, in the same way. That's the message. Just as Christ and the church are married, that relationship, so too are you to echo that marriage, to be like them. Each husband and wife play a distinct part. And at this point, therefore, I could sit down and say, husbands, be like the church, and husbands, be like Christ, and wives, be like the church. But I won't. I will help us flesh it out 
And our second point is, in this ultimate marriage, our human marriages are to reflect that and, and husbands be like Christ. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm going to address the husbands at this point. Husbands, God has given us a role as head of our family and head of our wife. And that headship is to be expressed in the same unrelenting, unconditional, self-sacrificing love for our wives as Christ has loved us, the church. A love that gives up your life for your wife. Let me be specific. Your interests, your hobbies, your ambitions, your energy, your time, all of it subsumed under the greater priority of your wife's good. No excuses, no conditions, not dependent on what she's like or how easy she is to love. It is not about you. It is all about her. All of us expected this passage to be uncomfortable, but I guess most of us thought it would be uncomfortable in what it says to wives. But I take it, and I believe, this passage is much more uncomfortable if we understand it in what it says to us as husbands. Personally, I found it profoundly challenging, and I'm sure all of us are the same. It is radical, radical. And the first male hearers would have likely been listening and nodding along in verses 22 and 23 and expected, as Paul turned to address them in verse 25, he was going to say, and husbands, rule your wives. But no, he says, husbands, love your wives. And not just love your wives, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in case we are so stupid that we missed it, he repeats it three times. Verse 25, verse 28, verse 33. Love your wives. Utterly countercultural. In the Roman world where wives experienced a vastly inferior status, this was revolutionary. Listen to what Charles Eltham says, an historian. In Rome, a wife was completely under her husband's power. She was his chattel. Her life was one of legal incapacity, which amounted to enslavement, while her status was described as imbecilitas, from where comes our word imbecile. But Christianity came along, and it was an utter turning upside down, nothing like it ever seen in history before. And I take it that is why Paul spends so much time addressing husbands, because it is so utterly radical. Again, Christopher Ashe says, if Paul's instructions on marriage are shocking to our modern ears, they would have shocked his, his first hearers for precisely the opposite reasons, their radical elevation of women. The world regards this whole passage as denigrating to women, but in fact, it is the most radical valuing of women imaginable. Husbands, to place her interests above himself and to give up his life for her. Our culture, which is so obsessed about self-realization and the pursuit of individual happiness as supreme, if our culture really understood what the Bible is saying at this point, it would find it totally unacceptable. But that is what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And that love isn't sort of aimless or fluffy. 
It is an aim direct, it is a love directed to a particular end. Just as Christ loved the church to make his bride holy and a splendor before the Lord on the final day, then our love as husbands for our wives is to be directed towards her personal, but especially her spiritual good. Do you realize that, husband? That you are to be the prime carer of your wife spiritually? May I say to any women who are looking to marry, look for a man who is going to love you like Christ loves the church, caring for your spiritual welfare above all. So the first reason given for husbands to love their wives is the model of Christ's self-sacrificial love. But the other is because in marriage the two become one flesh. Therefore he is to treat his wife as he would treat his own body because in a profound sense his wife is his own body. Did you see that in verse 28? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. If as husbands we hurt our wives, we're actually hurting ourselves because we're one flesh. When we care for our wives, we are in fact caring for ourselves because we are one flesh. The ultimate marriage is between Christ and the church. That is the model. And in that model, husbands are to take the role of Christ. It is a radical call for self-sacrificial love. Husbands to be like Christ and wives are to be like the church. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, to our ears and our culture, it is so revolutionary. And I think that is because we find the idea of submission itself utterly repulsive. We live in a culture that sees everything through a constant lens of a struggle for power, where to exercise authority, by definition, is to oppress others. And where to submit to authority is, by definition, to be oppressed. But may I say that is a lie from the pits of hell that our society has universally swallowed. Verse 21, all of us as Christians, men and women, are to be involved in relationships of authority and submission. All of us, men and women, are to submit to Christ, which is not oppression, but blessing. And all of us, men and women, elsewhere in the Bible, are called to submit to leadership in the church, in government, and in the workplace. And God, our loving Father, gives us these instructions not to harm us, but for our good. And so when God calls wives to submit to their husbands, it is in no way to denigrate or degrade or suggest that she is lesser than her husband. Wives and husbands are made equally in the image of God, equally members of Christ's church, equal partners in their marriage, each treated equally as moral agents, given the dignity to make their own choices of obedience to God. 
And the distinctive choice that the wife is asked to make is to voluntarily assume in a divinely given pattern the role of the church in that beautiful relationship between Christ and his bride. Husbands are called to express their God-given headship in unrelenting, undeserved, self-sacrificial love like Christ. We've heard that. And wives are called to choose to receive that headship of love with an attitude of trust and respect. Notice that Paul does not actually address husbands about their wives' behaviour. He doesn't say to husbands, make your wives submit, nor does he say vice versa. No, each of us has a responsibility and is given the dignity to make our own choice to obey God individually. Did you notice what is said to wives is remarkably sparse? We're not given a list of exactly what that will look like in every situation. And I take it that that is deliberate. Deliberate because every marriage is different. It is different if we're married to a mature Christian as a husband. Very different if we're married to a non-Christian. And every individual is different. But each of us is given the dignity and the freedom to work out what the instruction means in our own circumstances. With three bits of fine print. First, did you notice, verse 22, submission is to our own husbands, not to every man. Second, verse 22 again, submission to our husbands is as to the Lord. That is, our response to our husbands is really ultimately an expression of our reverence to the Lord Jesus. And thirdly, verse 24, wives are called to submit in everything. Just as with husbands, there is to be no limitation or condition on the call to love, not dependent on how easy a wife is to love, or that there are some areas in which he doesn't need to love her, well, so too with wives, the call to submission is without exception. But having said that, there are two clear biblical qualifications that we must hear. First, is when a husband ever asks something of his wife that is in conflict with obedience to Christ. We are never called to follow a husband into sin. If a husband is demanding something that is in conflict with obedience to Christ, well then Christ wins every time. And the second qualification, and I want us to hear this loud and clear, is that tragically, and we know all too well, that some husbands exercise their role not through love, but instead abuse. And that can be physical, sexual, verbal, social, financial, even spiritual. And that kind of tyrannical rule is precisely what Jesus came into this world to overthrow. And horrifically, this passage has been used and twisted to justify that kind of behaviour in the past. But may I say, if you experience or you know somebody who experiences abuse in a married relationship, please do not stay silent. Silence is not submission. It will take great courage to speak up, but it must be stopped for the good of children, for the good of yourself, and in fact, for the good of your husband. So, we draw to a conclusion. I just want to make a few concluding observations. First of all, this pattern that we're shown is radical. We've said that it is radical to our culture, but it is also radical and challenging to our nature. 
because each of us, by nature, following our first parents, are selfish. As men, our tendency is towards the selfishness expressed like Adam, that is to abdicate responsibility. He was there, standing by Eve, when she was spoken to by Satan, to abdicate responsibility and selfishness, or to force and oppress with our strength. Self-sacrificial love is directly opposite to that. Likewise, as women, we follow Eve. Eve, who wanted to rule over her husband. Submission and respect are in direct contradiction to that. What is required by each of us is selflessness. Husbands, again, it is not your job to make your wives submit to you. Husbands, your job is to make your wives submitting to you a delight and a joy. Wives, it is not your job to make your husbands love you like Christ. Wives, your job is to make loving you a delight and a joy. It's radical. It's radical, but it is beautiful. You may have heard this before, forgive me for saying it again, but there was a Christian couple at the church that I was involved in and worked at in London who invited some friends in their street for a dialogue dinner. That is where they invite a guest and He gives a short presentation, or she gives a short presentation of the Christian gospel. They invited my old boss, and that's what he did. And they opened it up for questions afterwards. And one of the guests, a lady, asked the question about this very passage and what my boss thought, and he explained it as graciously and clearly as he possibly could. And her response was this, I cannot agree with what you have said, but I've seen it lived out in the lives of our hosts, and it is beautiful. It is radical, it is beautiful, and it is good. God's word is for our good. It is for our flourishing. And what the world offers is nothing in comparison. The world, some might argue, had a situation of patriarchy. And that didn't work out very well. And there's been a response in feminism, radical feminism. And that hasn't worked out very well either. Marriages today are no better And our children's outcomes are no stronger than they have been when people have followed God's ways. God's word ultimately is good. And we have a choice, like they did in the garden, to believe or not to believe that God's word is good and for our good. And finally, we must say all of it is in the context of grace. If you're anything like me, you'll feel discouraged. You'll be aware of all your failures in this area. All of us, if married, will be aware in in ways that we have failed in our particular responsibilities. Some of us have experienced the anguish of divorce and hurt associated with it. None of us will get this right, this side of heaven. But we are the church, the church for whom Christ has died, to wash us clean of all our sins. And it is as we look at his example of love and we experience his love that we will be strengthened and enabled to love our wives and husbands, and each other as the bride, his church. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for your living and active word. We thank you that it is good and for our good. And we pray that you would enable us, each in our own situation, to be obedient to your word for your glory and for our blessing. Amen.